Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart, and for the last 40 years, I've interviewed thousands of veterans. I'll give it a rest. You're under new management. It's Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast now. Hello, I'm Peter Hart and I'm with Gary, Gary Bain. Oh, he's so lovely. And you, you're, you're in particularly uh, song and poetry form today, aren't you, Gary? Hello, is it me you're looking for? <laughs> I no. can see it in your eyes. I can feel it in your touch. There's something, something wrong with your eyesight. <laughs> I'm scowling. Hello, hello, hello. What are we doing today, Gary? Well, today we're doing uh, playing with great war poets. Oh, what type of play? Well, the poetry type. And uh, it, it's brought out the inner poet in me. And I'm going to revisit no! a poem that proved... Deeply unpopular. Well, certainly with you. No. no. Oh, dear old Fred, it must be said, you're often very smelly. When you let rip, I'm often sick and legs reduced to jelly. I hope he's in the room with you. That was, and can express- that was sort of Sassoon-like, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a bit Sassoon-like. Unfortunately, Vidal. <laughs> well, anyway, this is a real departure for us. I'm... <laughs> really not. You said it. You said it. You said before it started. This one's going to be crap. I didn't say crap. I said disastrous. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Well, I think it's going to be. I mean, some of them are difficult to read, aren't they? Yes. Uh, it's probably the emotion, Gary. Yeah, and I should say, you know, I I should make an admission here. I do not understand poetry at all. It goes straight over my head. Any. Uh, any hidden messaging or, uh, uh, you know, anything like that, I just completely miss. Yes, but you're a great poet yourself, apparently. Well, I, I know about dogs and their smells, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you certainly do. Right, well, we're going to start with the old cliche, uh, um, uh, Wilfred Owen. and uh, But we're not starting with that the, the, the one that you think we're going to start. We're going to start with uh, a poem called The Letter. Now, tell us a bit about... You're going to read this, aren't you? Tell us a bit about the poem. You found this one and it, it appealed to you, didn't it, in some way? Yeah, I mean, it was written in Ripon uh, in 1918 when Owen was 
preparing to return to France. Um, and uh, it's one of the more tiresome duties of an officer to censor the letters of his men. And um, uh, literary critics have claimed that despite his, shall we say, lower middle class background, Owen had a good understanding of the working class men he commanded. But... Um, uh, well, let, let's put, let people decide, because uh, this sounds to me more like a, a pastiche and quite an offensive one in some ways, so I'm, I'm, I don't go along with that. Uh, anyway, you're going to read it. Or, so I think we'd better... Before we start, we'd better say you're going to try and read it. Yeah, and uh, a pastiche for the uh, less informed, Pete, that's what, like a cartoon, is it? Yeah. Yeah, for my benefit. <laughs> anyway, this is the letter. With BEF, June 10th, dear wife. Oh, blast this pencil. Here, Bill, lends a knife. I'm in the pink at present, dear. I think the war will end this year. We don't see much of them square-headed uns. We're out of harm's way. Not bad fed. I'm longing for a taste of your old buns. <laughs> say, Jimmy, spares a bite of bread. There don't seem much to say just now. You what? Then don't you, ruddy cow. And give us back me cigarette. I'll soon be home. You mustn't fret. My feet's improving, as I told you of. We're out in rest now. Never fear. By crumbs, but that was near. Mother might spare you half a sov. Kiss Nell and Bert when me and you... Eat. What the hell? Stand to, stand to. Jim, gives a hand with pack on lad. Oh, Christ, I'm hit. Take hold. I bad. No damn your iodine. Jim here. Right, my old girl, Jim. There's a dear. Now, I'm ambivalent about this one because I actually like it. And you liked it. That's why you picked it, wasn't it? But what do, do do you think? What do you think about it? Tell tell us. Express your inner feelings, Gary. I don't have any at all, really. I told you it goes straight over my head. I think the interesting thing is that uh, at the time, <laughs> you know, dropping the H, uh, officers at the time found incredibly funny. You know, they thought that was really amusing to affect a, a, a false working class accent. And that's all over. Um, we've been working on a, a, a military humour of the Great War book. And it's all over young officers' letters, isn't it? it it's second lieutenants, captains, uh, that kind of thing. Are they being affectionate or are they being patronising and offensive? Well, I'd say it's patronising and offensive, but I would, wouldn't I? But then, <laughs> bizarrely, it's how I talk. I just said Al. <laughs> and what do you think of this poem? Why did you pick it? Well, I just think that it, it it's intermingling the life in the trench and he's having a conversation with his pal whilst writing the letter to his wife and the two are becoming enmeshed. And, um, I, you know, it, it's... So it's a clever it's poem. It's very clever and interesting that it was written, you know, in Ripon, well away from the, 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 the line. Now, you know... Lots of people know this, but but Wilfred Owen died on the fourth of November, nineteen eighteen, during the uh, the crossing. It's the only thing that happened on that day on the Western Front. There was no Battle of the Somme. Well, it's it's the crossing of the Sambre Brevis Canal, which you, you know is a, a fantastic achievement. Um, but what I you know I found surprising in looking at this is that actually he was promoted the day after he died to lieutenant. That's 
you might get promoted to full corporal the day after you die. <laughs> That's probably the only chance I've got of getting it, yeah. Now, it's also said and, and widely known that his mother received the telegram informing him, uh, informing her of his death on Armistice Day as the bells were, were ringing out in celebration. Now, for those of you who want to know a bit more, the, uh, the Wilfred Owen Association was formed in 1989 and uh, it, you can find that on the internet and it's got lots of interesting information about Wilfred Owen and uh, there are a number of memorials to his life, both in this country uh, and in France, and uh, there are details on that website and I heartily recommend you have a look. Now, who's, who's our next poet? This is my choice and it's, this is a cliché. Who's our next poet, Gary? Well, our next poet is uh, Siegfried Sassoon, and the poet that you se- poet the poem that you've selected uh, is well known. Uh, it's the general. Yes, the general. Now, uh, so who is Sassoon? Well, let, let's talk about him after the poem. Uh, now, the poet, the general. So I'll, I'll, I'll I'm not going to do any silly voices because it's hard enough reading bloody poetry without messing about. Uh, so here it goes. <laughs> God. <laughs> I'm strangely nervous. (laughs) Good morning, good morning, the general said when we met him last week on our way to the line. Now the soldiers he smiled at are most of them dead and we're cursing his staff for incompetent swine. He's a cheery old card, grunted Harry to Jack as they slogged up to Arras with rifle and pack. But he did for them both by his plan of attack. What's going on here? Now this... I want to make fun. I'm quite an admirer of Siegfried Sassoon. 1886, he was born. He died in 1967. And I actually played in the commemorative 100th year of the cricket match uh, that, uh, that, that uh, well, I was young then, uh, in about the 1990s, can't remember, of, of the flower show match. Um, I like Siegfried Sassoon. Nicknamed Mad Jack, a uh, very brave young officer. Very, very brave young officer. But what's he saying here in this poem? Come on, you can work out what he... What is he saying about generals about the war? Basically, that the British attacks are usually badly planned and involve mass slaughter. And you could argue that that's, uh, you know, partly responsible for the the terribly generic view that that people still hold. Yeah, so basically they're thinking... They're saying it's just defenceless men charging into machine gun fire... And it's crude and ineffectual. And the generals, he may be encouraging, but him and his staff are dooming you. Yeah, and, and, uh, and actually cheerfully oblivious to the, the suffering of the men. And whose side is Sassoon taking? It's obvious, isn't it? He's taking the side of the men. Uh, but uh, is he really one of the men? In, 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 in... No, he came from an incredibly wealthy uh, family. Um it's described as middle class, but but they had more money than Crucius, frankly, who had about four bob. <laughs> that's a very uh, that's a very uh, intellectual. Are these poems are rubbing off on you, or something's rubbing off on you. Uh, what about staff officers? They're they're. Uh... What do you think of staff officers? Well, we've had lots of discussions about staff officers throughout the podcast. You particularly uh, have made the point on a number of occasions about the value of good staff work. And, and Are you saying I repeat myself? You do repeat yourself. But also what's become clear is where where staff officers are not very good, they are usually removed. Uh, I, I remember a case in point when we were doing the, uh, the Boer War. And... Uh, it, you know that that doesn't sort of lend itself to the the poem, does it? That you know no. the staff officer was rubbish, so so uh, he sacked them all. It would have been a very short poem. 
And literary critics point out that the, the poem's clever because there's an initial affection for the, the general, uh, but then by the last line, he's given full responsibility for what's happening and, and, it, and the affection sort of freezes. Um, but but uh, this is another theme we've had. Are generals, do, do they, are they created fully formed or, or have they done... Have they been young men ever? No, and we've made the point again in earlier podcasts that, you know, I get I get quite annoyed that people are defined by one moment. Now, these are, you know, often um, crucial moments in history, but they've had lives that take them there. You know, Haig, for example, was a young officer in the Sudan. Um, he didn't just arrive. And the problem is that programmes like Blackadder, for example, where they portray Melcher as a sort of caricature of all the British generals um, and, and that stays in the psyche of the public um, and, and indeed I think uh, you're going to read again a, a parody of this poem The General Rich Yeah this this comes from a Lieutenant McClymont I've forgotten where I saw it that's fantastic uh, a good historian always reveals where his sources are but Lieutenant McClymont wrote this and he calls this The General Good morning, good morning, the general said as he passed down the line with a wound in his head. Now he knew he was wounded by the way that he bled. And when he got to the base, the poor bugger was dead. And that reminds us of, 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 of what ha, ha, how many generals were killed in action. Yeah, I and think it was not, about 72, wasn't it? Something like that. It's a lot, isn't it? Killed and wounded. And, uh, and that, to me, means that, again, I like this poem. Well, it's a limerick, basically. So I do like it, but is it good history? No, which makes me wonder why we're doing this. Mind you, we never do good history. <laughs> oh, you are chirpy. Now, the next one I'd like to dedicate to a friend of ours called James Thompson, uh, who does a wonderful reading of this poet. I, I mean, he's a poetic type by nature. Well, he's from Yorkshire. Yes, and, and Yorkshire people are usually of a poetic uh, ilk, so to speak. Um, now, this is by Patrick Shaw Stewart, and it's called I Saw a Man This Morning. Now, <laughs> it is to me, anyway. <laughs> I think it's just the first line. I don't think it's got a name. Tell me a bit about Patrick Shaw Stewart. Uh, you're going to read this, but give us a, an inkling as to what we're going to get. Well, he was born in 1888. He was the son of a major general. Um, he, was, uh, he was the son of a major general, and he was educated at Eton, and Balliol College in Oxford. Now, interestingly... So a, a normal working-class lad, then. Yeah, and interestingly, um, you know, his chum, uh, and, and that's an interesting thing. These people were all known to each other. They were all friendly, you know. Uh, what are you saying? <laughs> they, they were very well known to each other in some cases. And uh, Sassoon, for example, uh, knew uh, Wilfred Owen, knew um, Graves. So it's, so it's a very tight-knit circle. And uh, Patrick Shaw Stewart's friend, Rupert Brooke, described him as the most brilliant man they'd had in Oxford for 10 years. Now, that's not very long, to be fair, is it, 10 years? Also, I'm not sure if that inbred collection of no marks is really uh, any sort of standing, but there you go. Well, to be fair, Rupert Brooke was a genius and, and when, uh, you know, he, he was the leader of the, the glitterati, as they were known. And, uh, you know, he was part of that uh, that Hood Battalion glitterati with Brooke, Charles Lister, Frederick Kelly, Dennis Brown. You know, these are all 
all significant men in their time. Uh, now, I think this is the only known poem by Patrick Shaw Stewart. Yeah, he wrote it. Um, he wrote it during a, uh, they were at rest. Briefly, the Hood Battalion came out at rest uh, to Imbros in mid-July. And uh, it was uh, it was only found. I mean, it's not published as such. It was found after his death in 1917 in a collection of now this this I always love the way it's, this is presented as if everyone should go. Yes, of course. Well, I, I, I've read that myself. So it's found in a collection of Alfred Hoosman's poetry, a Shropshire lad. Now, have you read Hoosman's uh, or is it Houseman? I don't even know. It's Houseman, uh, I think. Read? Is it, are you just looking up on your shelves? Yeah, I'm just looking there? at my shelves. I'm just checking. Is it a well-thumbed um, copy? Uh, yes, yes. Oh, yes. It's definitely well-thumbed. How do you how do you pronounce Houseman, then? Houseman. Houseman, as you just did. Oh. Houseman. Oh, that's good. Um, <clears throat> now, I like Patrick Shaw Stewart because he wasn't quite as good-looking as the others. <laughs> and he had difficulty getting off with a young lady. Uh, um and he's he's just not quite as good looking as Brooke. He's not quite as flexible <laughs> in affairs of the heart as Rupert Brooke. And he's also not as witty as as Brooke, is he? They do, you know, often uh, Rupert Brooke's staggeringly. Yeah, um, often, you know, you you sit. I do understand some of Brooke's poetry. You read it, and you think he can't mean that when in fact he means it. You know, so um, you mean it's a bit like your limericks. Yes, yes. Now Can you have just. <laughs> Now, right. Patrick Shaw Stewart was killed, wasn't he, in action on the 30th of December 1917. Uh, and he just refused to to uh, come, re- out, of the line, come out, yeah. out of the line because he'd had his ear torn off by flying shrapnel just a few minutes previously. He probably should have done in retrospect, although then he'd have been hit by a shell on the way back. You, you know. I, I, want, I think a, a point you want, you, you want to make quite firmly, the, we're not being rude about these people. So soon, Patrick Shaw Stewart, they're... they're these people are brave officers uh, and competent. Uh, I mean, he was a company commander, I think, by then. Uh, or was he even the battalion commander? Can't remember. Second in command. Can't remember. But uh, they're brave, competent officers. Now, this poem is difficult. And we all think of James, that poetic soul, stood in Gallipoli reciting this. Tears fell down our faces. We couldn't stop laughing, could we? But uh, go on, let's have this poem. I think this is quite brilliant in parts. Do you, do, so let's go through it. No, I think I, I think that's unfair. I think it is actually quite brilliant. And when you consider this is his only known work, you know, I think that you've got to to realise that that this is a creation of the the circumstances and the, and how he was feeling. It's evident how he's feeling uh, about uh, about the death of his friend. So this is called "I Saw a Man This Morning." I saw a man this morning who did not wish to die. I ask and cannot answer, if otherwise wish I. Fair broke the day this morning against the Dardanelles. The breeze blew soft, the morn's cheeks were cold as cold sea shells. But other shells are waiting across the Aegean Sea. Shrapnel and high explosive, shells and hells for me. O hell of ships and cities, hell of men like me. Fatal second Helen. Why must I follow thee? Achilles came to Troyland, and I to Chersonese. He turned from wrath to battle, and I from three days' peace. Was it so hard, Achilles, so very hard, to die? 
Thou knewest, and I know not, so much the happier I. I will go back this morning, from Imbros over the sea, stand in the trench, Achilles, flame-capped and shout for me. Now, despite you adding a, a, an unwanted amount of humour to the second but last verse, I think those last two verses are stunningly brilliant. Uh, so, funny, it's, it's, I think this is a, a good piece of work. A couple of the, I mean, all, the puns, which literary geniuses say uh, are amazing, like uh, seashells and shells and hell and Helen, they sort of fly over me a bit because, to me, they're just obvious. Uh, not because I'm bright, but because they're nearly the same word. They're not great puns, are they? No, but you've got to think about where they are. You know, the, <laughs> for, for the educated uh, officer of that time, they, they were in... Uh, Troy, you know, it was the the Iliad, they wasn't see it? it. We um, looked across to it, haven't we? Yeah, so so they're in a part of the world that they associate with romantic stories and uh, you know great gods and and the the Greek tales. So it's it's not surprising that he's put things in that way, not at all. I'd also like to mention my chum Roger Chapman, who read this on Patrocles. Uh, uh, it's what it's a mound that's meant to be Patrocles's grave mound. That Patrocles is uh, Achilles' chum, uh, and that's uh, how he liked to be known. He used to introduce himself. Hi, he'd say, "I'm Patrocles, Achilles' chum." He would I think say. he probably did, to be absolutely honest. <laughs> uh, but Roger was reading his poem on the man's tomb, and uh, at that time, our, our brilliant guide, Bullet York, was his mobile phone went off at the very most dramatic moment of was it so hard Achilles dring 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 I've just got to answer this fantastic poetry uh it's um uh, what is the last line about you interpreted you've looked this up what does that line flame captain shout for me what does it mean Gary what does it mean I think it's making reference to the terrifying blaze of frames that spun from Patrocles' head as he lets loose a deathening battle cry. <laughs> oh, yeah, sorry, Achilles' head. Um, as he, yeah, because Patrocles is dead. He's dead, mate. Your chum. And uh, that sends panic through the Trojan troops. And I think it's alluding to that. But, I mean, it, this is all... This, this is all about the death of his friend, really, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's great. I, I, I like that one. So we pass that one. Now, the next one is We yours. pass that one. Now, Tick. Yeah. <laughs> now, this next one was chosen by you. And, and can you explain a bit about the background as to why you chose it? I thought you chose it because it was short and easy to read. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, do you know what? Having said well, having said right at the start that I don't understand things, I understand this and I like it. And I think, you know, um, it as, as people will soon realise, there's a, there's a brevity to this. But um, that's what makes this brilliant. Cause it, What's it called? It's it's by H.W. Garrod. And it's Heathcote. Heathcote. Oh, well, you'd know because you bought the book off the back of I this. I did. Um, Heathcote Garrett, and it's called Epitaph Nerve Chapelle. Now, so tell me, tell me a bit about him. He was born in Wells in 1878. He was also he was quite old by the time. Was he? Was he at Nerve? Well, carry on. Sorry. He was Working. educated at Bath College and Balliol College, Oxford. Again, 
That's um, a coincidence, isn't it? It's as if all these knobs went to the same place. Yeah, yeah, strange, though, isn't it? He was a, a, a teacher. He was a tutor in English literature at Corpus Christi College, Oxford. And uh, during the First World War, he worked on the civilian side. He was first uh, with the Ministry of Munitions and then in the Ministry of Reconstruction. So he didn't serve. Well, he served in a different way, should we say. Uh, Now, Which is strange that he wrote this poem then in in one sense. Um, Now, he was quite a witty type, this. uh, And and you found uh, another quote from him. Uh, when when he was some woman was offering him a white feather or something, and uh, he comes now. This 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 quote is worth the price of admission as well. Tell us it, Gary. Well, bearing in mind that at this time people who were seen to be of uh, military age were often accosted in the street as to why they weren't in uniform, and uh, it said why, that why they weren't fighting to defend civilization. Yeah, it said that he was accosted by a woman who asked him that exact question. Uh, why are you not serving with the soldiers fighting to defend civilization? And his reply was, Madam, I am the civilization they are fighting to defend. <laughs> Which is quite brilliant. <laughs> oh, I like this man. Now, uh, uh, now uh, you were going to explain to me where this comes from, because uh, it, it, it's, it, tell me the background. So what's it based on, Gary? Well, as you know, because we did, we did feature it recently, it's, uh, it's based on Simonides' famous Epitaph for the Dead at uh, Thermopylae. So it's called Epitaph at Nerve Chapelle. Now, you're gonna have, you're gonna, it's going to take you a while to get yourself ready to read this, so yeah. I'll give you time. <laughs> Thanks. La, 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 la. Me, 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 me. Right. Tell them at home there's nothing here to hide. We took our orders, asked no questions, died. Wow. I think I think it's good. I think it's brilliant. It gets its message across. And now we're going to read about four poems following it. Well, to, uh, in a bit, poems that uh, are trying to get things across in fancy language and all the rest of it. This is simple and hard-hitting, would you not say? I think it's brilliant. I think, um, you know, there, there are... <sighs> There have been lots of, of other versions, haven't there? I think you, you've referenced one by uh, William Golding called Well, right, it's a particularly Stranger. bad one. Read, the, read that one for us. It's appalling. <laughs> uh, I don't have it, so I can't read it. Uh, but I've got a, I've got a line them. from it. Stranger, tell the Spartans that we behaved as they would wish us to and are buried here. Well, uh, what does it all mean? Well, the, the start, tell them at home. Well, tell them at home because we don't want to hide anything from them. Um, well, or tell them at home because there's nothing here for them to hide. Although, <laughs> actually, they were hiding things everywhere, weren't they? All over the place. Ooh. And, and it's, it's not taking orders different from behaving as they would wish us to. So there's, there's differences. It's all, oh, it's compulsory sacrifice now, isn't it? It's all very, very intellectual, isn't it? So take us through the three steps of this episode. This is a sort of crap analysis that ruins a poem. That's why we're doing it. We're saying this is crap, this analysis. So take us through the steps that Garrard goes through. Well, I found this analysis rather helpful. It's, um, <laughs> Garrard's epitaph, it, it, it's three steps, isn't it? It couldn't be many more. It's only four lines. Um, we took our orders, asked no questions, died. So if they'd not taken their orders, 
but of course they, they had to. They had to, yeah. Or if they'd asked questions, um, well, were the questions to ask? Did they know the questions to ask? It's all, it's all mystery, isn't it? But the suggestion is that their fate might have been avoided after all, which is nonsense, really, isn't it? Um, soldiers, they asked no questions. That recalls the previous line and hints that things were being hidden from them. And uh, now that they they're dead, there's nothing here to hide because they're dead. Oh, I can see that. I mean, if they're dead, then you don't need lie to them. No, you only have to lie to living soldiers, don't you? Well, to think all that, and I thought it was just an ace couple of lines, or, you know, but... Well, I thought, it, and I still do think it's an ace couple of lines. I think it's brilliant. Right, we're moving on now, and the next one is uh, is taken from the 17th Highland Light Infantry. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to read it in a Scottish accent, because people... People fall. complain generally. They get the they get the pitchforks and lighted brands out. Well, I think they? you're lucky because it's uh, by T. Roxburgh and he, he was from Edinburgh or Berg. Oh, well, so I'll read it in an English accent then, and it'll be fine. Uh, now this this is not a good poem, but this is common of the poetry that is. Again, we found all this stuff while we're working on our new book, haven't we, Gary? It's all over the place. Bad poetry. Uh, this is probably the best. Uh, because it finishes with a joke, but often it's ju- and again often in this uh, they use uh, they use this fake working class accent. But uh, this is this is T. Roxburgh. I haven't even looked up who he really is, and it's in that seventeenth history. Uh, here we go. A white mist drifts across the butts. The grass is white with morning frost. <laughs> Think of all the sleep I've lost, and no, I cannot shoot for nuts. The blood-red flag is lowered now, the blinking bullseyes in a row. Benignly watch my trigger go, they know they're safe enough, I trow. I trow? What the... Anyway. The five rounds spent, I linger still, with hope and fear in bitter strife. Yet all the while you bet your life, I know my shots are in the hill. Debosh you from the parapet, you see my rifle aimed at you. Do not, I beg, retire from view. I'll only use the bayonet. Now, I like this poem because because I know my shots are in the hill means you, you'd understand this because you from your training that's into the what well, the butt, isn't it? Yeah, into the into uh, the sandbank. The sandbank at the back. Um and uh, and and I like the fact I won't hit you with a rifle, so I'm going to bail at you. That's right. What do you think of this poem? Because I picked it, and uh, you've been strangely quiet about it. I notice your notes have nothing in about it, as if you weren't interested. No, I I just <laughs> I just found it by note. By note, you mean yes? No, I mean what I found most interesting was your flowing accent from um, from Craggy Welshman. To um, Craigie, you. Um, it, but it was quite, quite Look, interesting. A Scottish person has said that your Scottish accent is rubbish, and I that whilst mine's rubbish, he said I can go a. Yeah, my parents were both Scottish, so clearly I, I cannot do a Scottish accent. All four of my grandparents were Scottish. Yeah, grandparents. To the va- to the, to the vast shame of the entire family. <laughs> parents. No, but it's interesting, isn't it? But it's. I, you know, and anybody who's uh, been in the uh, the armed forces can can identify with the. I think with so. the range. I think it's a good. 
So that's, I would say it's bad poetry, but to us, we probably like it more than some of the ones that are going to follow because we're going to run into what I call bad poetry coming up. The next one you picked, though, you quite liked the next one, didn't you? Uh, it's Edmund Blunden, The Watchers. Now, I, I, let this, I'll let I'll tell you a bit about him because you've got the poem to read. You're probably going to have to, it's not easy to read, is it? Uh, so Blunden, he was born in 1896. He was awarded a scholarship to Queen's College, Oxford. Do you know, it's strange how they all seem to go to the Oxford University. But uh, war put a stop to all that and nonsense. <laughs> and he's commissioned to the Royal Sussex Regiment. I can't, can't remember which battalion. Seventh? Can't remember. Can't remember. Twelfth. And he served on the Western Front. And it's all commemorated in what we, I think a book we both got, Undertones of War, which came out in 1928. And it's well in the miserable um, suffering thing uh he was an all after the war he became an all-purpose literary critic journalist tutor at merton college and travel writer and he died in 1974 i thought all uh, the great war poets died in the war well i mean everybody died in the great war as you well know nobody lived because of the generals oh true right so get, let's let's have your best effort at the watchers yeah this is uh, the watchers by edmund blunden I heard the challenge, who goes there? Close kept, but mine through midnight air. I answered and was recognised, and passed, and kindly thus advised. There's someone crawling through the grass, by the red ruin, or there was, and then machine guns been a-firing, all the time the chaps was wiring. So, sir, if you're going out, you'll keep your head well down, no doubt. When will the stern find who goes there? Meet me again in midnight air, and the gruff sentry's kindness when will kindness have such power again? It seems as now I wake and brood, and know my hour's decrepitude, that on some dewy parapet the sentry's spirit gazes yet, who will not speak with altered tone when I am last am seen and known. Now, I didn't understand this poem at first, but I now get the vague idea that uh, he's, he's, he, this is in later life and he's looking back on this century and it seems to haunt his, haunt his thoughts. Uh, um, and, and, and you want to say something about him, don't you? I mean, because uh, Blunden, Blunden was deeply affected by the war, wasn't he? Yeah, he, he sort of he was haunted it by all his life and, and uh, it seemed that he, he lived in that world rather than the real world um, that's what he actually said isn't it yeah and, and that's what that that's so much for some sometimes it seems to him as if that's real more real than his actual life he never really moved on did he as they say well yeah but you can understand that um you uh, can so do we like that one or not i i think it flows well and i think you know there's a little bit of the drop in the h's to, to you know yeah, to affect I the, that. the I thought it was just in. you at first but then I looked <laughs> no, at the text <laughs> no, no there is a little bit of it and you know it, the other way of doing it is to drop the G at the end of wiring and things like that so there's there's a bit of that in there but actually it flows brilliantly well um, and you can imagine somebody coming in and, and updating the sentry that you know there's a, there's a bit of firing going on while the working party's been out and uh, and it's he's looking back at the time when he's your age and, and looking at you now I can see you uh, you you you've got sort of decrepitude is sort of would that that word would sum you up yeah I'm not and, sure he was my age in 1914 because I'm 59 but 
So, he didn't write it then. He wrote it in a, some other years. <laughs> yes, but I think he would have been somewhat younger than 59 when he was coming in from patrol. Mm, 59 um, and still lovely. But the other thing it does is it emphasises some of the more mundane stuff. You know, it wasn't all going over the top, going out and fixing the wiring, for example. You know, maintaining the trenches. That all had to be done, dangerous though it was, um, you know, it, it was stuff that had to go on on a daily basis. Now, nobody cares but what we think. I'm making that clear. And, and I understand that... Not even us. The, not even us. Poet, you make your own mind up about any work of art. But the next one is... Um, you chose it and then gave it to me to read. And I, I understand why you gave it to me to read. Um, this is Frederick Manning, The Face, brackets Gillimore. Uh, he was born... Well, tell us a bit about it. Well, he was born in I'm, Sydney, I'm, Australia in 1882. Not um, Sydney, somewhere else. No, Sydney, Australia. And at 16, he was sent to England to live with the family friend. You know, a family friend. <laughs> yeah. And uh, in 1914, he, he joined up and served as a private in the King's Shropshire Light Infantry. Now, after the war, in 1929, he published his war novel, uh, at first anonymously, in a limited edition of just 520 copies. Uh, Sounds it, like my book. Yeah, it was privately printed under the title The Middle Parts of Fortune. Now, he wanted to remain anonymous and let his story speak for himself. When I read the, uh, Gary, when I read the first line of my recent book, Evacuation, I wanted, I wished I'd been anonymous. <laughs> well, I think you'll be anonymous thereafter. Um, <laughs> now, he wanted to remain anonymous because he wanted the story to speak for itself. And, and he states that he would have wrote uh, was fictional but you but you sort of sense that this this was said to protect men who he would not want to think he sort of characterized unfairly because he also says that he felt he was uh, making a record of their words which you can't really do if it's fictional and had heard the voices of ghosts whilst he was writing now originally the obscenities in the book restricted the circulation and uh, an expurgated version her private we, which is uh, an interesting title, appeared in 1930, and he died in London in 1935. Mm, that's, that's so quite young. a young man. Yeah. Have you got these books? Because I've got them, but I, I couldn't get on with them. I, I I didn't like them. They're very very popular and highly regarded, but I I don't like semi-fictionalized stuff. What do you have? You read them or no? The only one I've got that semi-fictionalized is is Robert Graves. I think. That's the only yeah. one I've ever, ever Oh, heard. are you saying Robert Graves is fictionalised? How controversial. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is, is fictionalised. I'm going to try. This is really difficult. The face, Gillimore. Out of the smoke of men's wrath, the red mist of anger, suddenly, as a wraith of sleep, a boy's face, white and tense, convulsed with terror and hate, the lips trembling. Then a red smear falling, I thrust aside the cloud as it were tangible, blinded with a mist of blood. The face cometh again as a wraith of sleep, a boy's face, delicate and blonde, the very mask of God, broken. Now you chose it. Why did you choose it? Because I like your face. <laughs> because, you know, this is a man having nightmares. Uh, and, and that's why I chose it. This This is not contemporaneous you know he's looking back he's having trouble sleeping 
and and when he closes his eyes he sees the face of uh, probably a long dead com comrade um and and it i just think that i just think that it tells its own story and this could apply whatever the war you know this could be the great war this could be the second world war this could be vietnam it could be anywhere i i find it difficult the the way it's written the uh the the, the thing it's almost as if he's trying to make it cl- too clever uh i don't know yeah but um, often i'm I, just too too dumb to understand it well no I, I often i think that's unfortunately one of the views i have of poetry that sometimes they are being too clever certainly too clever for me um, well i'll i'm gonna i'm gonna give an illustration i think they try and obfuscate the meaning by by using words that 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 that, that are different are difficult to understand as in obfuscate that they'd love to stick that in a poem if they could uh and and i think they use they they're deliberately difficult and i'm afraid that the next one which is also your choice you are much more cultured than me herbert reed the happy warrior now tell us a bit because i find this one slightly difficult um Tell us about uh, Herbert Reed then. The man stood by the garden gate. He was too late to obfuscate. That's not Herbert Reed. No. Um, now, Herbert, now I like this, but for, for probably all the well, wrong reasons. Well, this is reasons. the Happy Warrior, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, this warrior. is Herbert Reed's The Happy Warrior. Now, Reed, uh, he, he studied at Leeds University and uh, his studies were interrupted by the war, as were a number of peoples, and he served with the Yorkshire Regiment on the Western Front. Fine body of men. Yeah. Now he was bad tempered, grumpy, miserable, but a fine body. <laughs> now he was commissioned, he was promoted to captain, he won the DSO and the MC in nineteen eighteen. So again a brave man. Um, his best known poem oh, is, well that's what we're gonna do, isn't it? The best Yeah, poem. his best known poem describes a soldier killing a German and it concludes with "This is the happy warrior." Now, well, let's look at the end. Let let's let, let them hear it first, then. So, yeah. And then, so, and then we'll have. A... This is the happy warrior. His wild heart beats with painted sobs. His strained hands clench an ice cold rifle. His aching jaws grip a hot parched tongue. His wide eyes search unconsciously. He cannot shriek. Bloody saliva dribbles down his shapeless jacket. I saw him stab and stab again. A world killed Bosch. This is the happy warrior. This is he. Now, I don't know what's going on here. Give us a, give us an idea. It, it suggests that he's stabbing an already dead man. Who is stabbing him? Well... Do you see what I mean? I, I find it all switches about. Well, who's who's the happy warrior? Because, you know, is the happy warrior enjoying the killing? Or I actually started thinking, well, is the happy warrior the dead man? You know, happy that he's had a warrior's death, for example. So you're saying it's ambivalent? It, I, I, well, I couldn't possibly say that for a number of reasons. <laughs> but um, it's also being told as if somebody's watching. You know, it, it's um, it's a very odd perspective, and and the end of it is as and if. What's this hot parched tongue business? It's ice cold rifle, but a hot parched tongue. I don't understand that. Well, ah, and again, if you're watching, how do you know about his tongue? It's a very strange perspective. And whose tongue is it? Is is it the bloke stabbing or the bloke being? I, I'm I'm I'm. Uh... And it also just sort of tails away at the end, doesn't it? And this is he. 
I quite a, like that. I, I mean, the Happy Warrior. I mean, we know someone who was called the Happy Warrior, don't we? It's a, uh, Ian Hamilton. Oh, of course, yes. That, that was his, one of his nicknames. <laughs> right, so now we're on to another favourite of yours. Uh, I, I, I am impressed by your choice of poetry. You've, you've really covered the basis of uh, miserableness. And this is uh, Robert Graves' Dead Bosch. Um, now, Robert Graves, you've been reading him recently to get some quotes for our book, and uh, he was Robert von Ranke. Uh, an old English name. Uh, born into a middle-class family in Wimbledon, uh, 1895. He was the son of a bishop. Um, so and behaved he's uh, like it. the son I, of a preacher, think... man. <laughs> and like all sons of bishops and bishops, he, he had no morals whatsoever. Um, he was educated at Charterhouse. Uh, in fact, he'd won a place there, hadn't he? Commissioned to the third Royal Welsh Fusiliers. Uh, published the first volume of poems uh, over the... Bra- I can't say that. Brazier. Thank you. I always that ends up as a bra with me in 1916. Uh, badly wounded uh, on the Somme, shot through the lung of shell fragment, 16. Spent the rest of the war in UK. Post-war, he writes Goodbye to All That, 1929, which was revised and republished several times. Uh, great success, lost him nearly all his friends, most noticeably Siegfried Sassuna. I don't think ever spoke to him again. They thought it was uh, over the top, full of lies, and he refused to correct things. But it's never been out of print. It's It's been in print ever since. How many years is that? Oh, more than 10. He, he really, I mean, I know him best from I, Claudius, because that, that was a programme we all watched in uh, the 1970s, because there were occasionally women with no clothes on. Well, um, also the acting was fantastic. It was. It was great. Uh, who was the star? Who was Claudius? It was someone... Derek Jacobi. Uh, that's it. You're so educated. Uh, um, so uh, he died in 1985. I remember I, I tried to get permission to go out to interview him. Oh, yeah, because he, he moved out to Mallorca, didn't he? He lived, in, lived and died in Mallorca. Was it Mallorca? Yeah, I think so. Some island in the Mediterranean. Anyway, the, the War Museum refused to let me go. Uh, now, this poem is, you're going to read, and it's difficult. I, 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 I don't like this one. Uh, it's called Dead Bosch, based on the fighting at Mamet's Wood and the Somme in 16. What he's trying to do is illustrate the horror of war, and I think it's just a list of nasty things. But you like it. I do. Or do you? Or I do. do you like it? No, I do like it. Dead Bosch. To you who'd read my songs of war and only hear of blood and fame, I'll say you've heard it said before. War's hell, and if you doubt the same, Today I found in Mamet's wood a certain cure for lust of blood, where propped against a shattered trunk, in a great mess of things unclean, sat a dead Bosch he scowled and stunk, with clothes and face a sodden green, big-bellied, spectacled, crop-haired, dribbling black blood from nose and beard. You like, why do you like it? Because, do you know what, it's coming apparent, you were the one who said you didn't like poetry, and yet you've liked a lot of these poems. Whereas I'm ambivalent about that one. No, you're assuming I've chosen them on the basis that I like them, which is not the case. Some of them, them I've chosen because I wanted you to read them, such as The Happy Warrior, and then you made me read it. <laughs> so um, you, uh, mustn't, you mustn't read too much into the choices. Uh, so I mean, you said you liked it. Why did you like it? Um, because I don't actually like it i think that this is you said you did I, listeners go back and hear i think it's simply that i like 
a representation of graves. I think this is so typical of graves. Um, if you, if you do read, and I recommend you do read, uh, goodbye to all that. You know, he he's often presenting things in a particular way. He presents himself as a very popular uh, <laughs> officer uh, within the uh, uh, within the battalion, when in fact he's not. Um, and uh, I just think this is this couldn't have been written by anybody else. I don't think um, because I think it just says Rob, uh, Robert Graves all the way through it, and. You know there are some some truisms in it, isn't there? They're, they're propped against a shattered trunk in a great mess of things unclean. That's going to be true. Yeah. You know that that is going to be true. Uh, he scowled and stunk. Yeah, very probably. Um, how long had like the well? How long had body been there? Yeah, I think big-bellied, spectacled, crop-haired um, <laughs> describes me perfectly. Actually, at the moment. Um, <laughs> I was being kind. Yeah, all right. Um, but, you know, there, there are a number of uh, poems uh, from the First World War. There's a number of books. That, you know, this comes from something called The First World War, which is edited by Martin Stephen. And I just think it is Robert Graves. You know, there's probably better ones, but this, for me, um, shows his personality. Now, the, the next one, for me doesn't show the man's personality because Rupert Brooke, the soldier. We both picked this. Um, now, uh, um, tell, tell me a bit, well, tell me a bit about Rupert Brooke. I've got a story I want to tell about him. So do you give the outline of who is Rupert Brooke? Well, again, he was born, uh, as all of them were, uh, in 1887. <laughs> um, now, were they all born in 1887? No, they were all born, though. And Now, interestingly, he was described as the handsomest young man in England. Um, Sorry. Not not Britain, England. There were oh, the, well, the, the Scots are a different... There's a whole race of, of good-looking, handsome men in Scotland, hence me, of course. Um, he was uh, gorgeous, uh, multi-sexual, and uh, he was already... <laughs> what does that... <laughs> oh, yeah, never mind. Multisexual, Peter. I think you can work that out. He's already a famous poet when he enlisted into the Royal Naval Division. Uh, he fought with the, the R&D at Antwerp. Now, people always go say he wasn't in action or try and imply, but that was quite a serious business and there were a lot of casualties, mainly prisoners, but he was in, he was in the war. You've also got to think about when that was. The R&D was largely untrained when You're it went kidding. to Antwerp. Uh, and it certainly didn't have all the support necessary. And, uh, you know, he, he was lucky to escape what's been described as uh, a Churchillian fiasco. Um, well, look, luckily, Churchill will never affect his life again. No. So uh, <laughs> so before he joins the, the Hood Battalion, uh, he... he uh, uh, sorry, before long he joins the Hood Battalion, he becomes the head of what what we're describing as the Glitterati. We've mentioned I them earlier. The they are my favourites. Now, sadly, and it is sadly, because I think um, you know he would have wanted a, a, a different death, he died of blood poisoning from an infected mosquito bite en route to Gallipoli in April 1915. I think it was a bite on his lip, Pete, wasn't it? He was, yeah. Um, now, he becomes a national symbol, I think, uh, uh, of tragic wartime loss to a whole, you know, of a really promising... Georgian, if you like, they used to call themselves sometimes generation. Yeah, and 
and and if you think he died in 1915, his, po- his poems were, were published uh, uh, posthumously in May 1915. The, the, the collection of work that he did, the body of work that he did in such a short space of time is quite quite terrific, really. Now, the thing about this poem is this poem is is a serious poem, but I like to think of Rupert Brooke, in other words, one of his, 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 his correspondence, his letters are full of hilarious things about 15-inch guns. And, and if you ever think, is this man taking the piss or is he being rude? Then the answer with Rupert Brooke is he is. And my favourite story about him is that uh, he was famous, legendary. And I remember being at a, a debate with some Rupert Brooke people when we went to the island of Skyros, which I believe is where the Daleks came from, and, um, and where he's buried. And uh, it was interesting because at breakfast... There was two things that happened. One, they said, isn't that where Rupert Brooks first lost his anal virginity? Which caused me to, to, to spit out half my complex because I wasn't expecting that in this rather refined company. And then they went on to say, yes, and they had a, dis- a debate between them as to whether it was more dramatic that Rupert Brooks had died, dived naked into a, a freezing cold pond with a gigantic hard-on and emerged flaccid or had dived into the freezing cold pond Pond flaccid and then emerged with a gigantic hard on. And I was able to help them in this because I was able to say, Oh, I think you'll find that uh, it's more impressive diving in flaccid and coming out of a freezing coal pond with a gigantic hard on. So this was my insight into Rupert Brooke. Um, you'll see I'm, I'm an intellectual. And, and contribution to uh, society. Yeah, I think I, I helped them there. You did, yeah. Anyway, this is his poem. Um, it's famous, The Soldier. If I should die, think only this of me, that there's some corner of a foreign field that is forever England, there shall be, in that rich earth a richer dust concealed, a dust whom England bore, shaped, made aware, gave once her flowers to love, her ways to roam, a body of England's, breathing England's English air, washed by the rivers, blessed by the sons of home. Now, I find this poem strange. It's got a couple of great lines in it, hasn't it? But do you not think the rest is... Well, it's of its time, isn't it? I mean, it's almost as if the body of an Englishman uh, enhances the earth in which he's buried in that foreign field. You know, it's just just of its time, Pete. But It's a bit over the top, and... It's almost like he, he thinks he's looking forward to dying a noble death. Well, I think he may well have been. I think, you know, if if, if it could have been mapped out for him to go to Gallipoli, you know, we're getting back into the realms of the Iliad again, and, you know, have a, a noble death fighting for, for king and empire. A, a new crusade. Yeah, or bitten by a mosquito. But there are a couple of great. Like, there is a piece of England in that foreign language. Uh, you know that that there's some powerful images in there. But I, I'm I'm not sure I like it. But we had to cover it. And uh, it's often used, isn't it? It's used in uh, uh, if you watch documentaries or if there is any programming about uh, um, poetry, it is the one that is used. I think um, the first four lines are the best. I think after that it loses its way to me. Um, uh, I noticed that in my songs. Uh, uh, I remember writing a couple. A backdoor banging was one, and it just lost its way. After I cannot believe that you have compared backdoor banging to the soldier by Rupert Brooke. Those naughty lumps are an excellent band and have many insights into the human condition. 
all leaving your back door unlocked, which is what that song's about. Right, moving swiftly on. Moving swiftly on, we come to a tour de force from A.P. Herbert, uh, which is uh, that shit shooter, we call it. Uh, who? So, so, so what's going on? Who, who, who's uh, A.P. Herbert, Gary? Uh, well, A.P. Herbert... Um, He's an intellectual, isn't he? He is, and uh, he he was serving, I think, in the Royal Naval Division, wasn't he? Um, uh, yes, he was in the Hawk Battalion. Yeah, and General Shute was appointed General Officer Commanding the Royal Naval Division in 1916, and to say that he had a difficult relationship with the officers of the Royal Naval Division is an understatement, but it was mutual, you know, they detested each other, frankly. Well, he... I mean, he had Haig on his back saying that the these divisions from uh, Gallipoli were no good. Uh, he had Haig say, you know, uh, and, and then on top of that, they affect all these ludicrous nautical affectations. So saying they're going ashore when they're going on leave and, and, and growing beards. Port side and starboard side. And... Yeah, it's just, and it's affected. And they weren't that efficient when they came in. Um but but you're going to read his poem. And now, th- this is what I find, because we'll talk about who General Shute is afterwards, but uh, l- let you read the poem, because it, it's a wonderful piece of doggerel. I'm not sure I'd call it poetry. Yeah, I mean, you've got to bear in mind, A.P. Herbert became very famous after the war. He was a very humorous writer. He, he was a, a legal satirist and a member of Parliament. So, you know, he's a very clever man, and this is a very clever poem. It is. So it's called That Shit Shoot. The general inspecting the trenches exclaimed with a horrified shout, I refuse to command a division, which leaves its excreta about. But nobody took any notice. No one was prepared to refute that the presence of shit was congenial compared to the presence of shoot. And certain responsible critics made haste to reply to his words, observing that his staff advisers consisted entirely of turds. For shit may be shot at odd corners, and paper supplied there to suit. But a shit would be shot without mourners if somebody shot that shit shoot. Now, I think that's brilliant. And it is. It's very wow, funny. Wow, did Herbert, A.P. Herbert number shit shoot. I mean, he really numbered him. But look, look, the thing is, who is... So it's Major General Cameron shoot. Who is he? He's he, he, a long-standing regular soldier... He didn't suffer fools gladly. He didn't court popularity. Uh, he, he was unquestionably high, very, very, very able general. And the most, the, the, the thing is that one thing is that the Royal Naval Division thought they knew it all because of Gallipoli, but they didn't, did they, Gary? They didn't know it all. And one great example is that, uh, that Shute insisted that they dug uh, jumping off trenches before they attacked uh, in the, uh, the Battle of the Ankh. Uh, uh, and and those, on, it was the 13th of November, 1916. And they moaned like mad. But while they were waiting to go over the top, the Germans opened fire with 5.9s. And he saved a lot of their lives. Were they grateful, Gary? No, probably not. But, I mean, bear in mind, they were committed very late in the Battles of the Somme. So, you know, they, they would have seen all the newspaper reports about the... the uh, uh, the attacks on the 1st of July, for example. So he he was very pragmatic in his approach. He wanted to stamp out what he saw as the indiscipline, which would ultimately lead to problems when they went into the attack. And frankly, he was right. And it was his 
and others leadership that uh, was effective when it came to them being committed on the Ankara. And they should have realised the job that he did save lives, because it did. But he was a miserable, cantankerous old bastard, which in a general, as we well know, uh, are qualities that are, you know, required. There's, there's a great story about one of his officers, uh, and he's, he's saying, I believe you are deliberately standing here to hide this. There was some ammunition boxes buried in the mud. I believe you are, you are deliberately standing there to, to hide this from me. And the officer said, uh, uh, good God, if I'd known you were coming, this is the last place on earth where I should have been standing. Now, the thing about that is, that is insolent beyond belief. And it's part of the Royal Naval Division thing. But you can't behave like that. You've got to be, you can't leave ammunition boxes lying about the place, uh, buried in mud. Shoot is often right. So I think on balance, what I would say is if I was analysing from what the poets you've looked at, who was more often right, poets or generals? I'd say the generals were more often right than the poets. What would you say? I'd say that uh, the poets had an opportunity that was granted to them uh, in probably no other circumstances to put down on paper uh, some fairly um, cutting remarks, shall we say, um, which you know they wouldn't have said to their faces. Uh, perhaps A.P. Herbert would have done, but I don't think many <laughs> of the others would. I, I think the poems are... I think... What do we think generally about Poetry of the Great War? Does it have a value? It's an outlet, isn't it? Um, there's not, as far as I know, not many uh, non-commissioned poets, as it there were. There were some. Um, but they, they do tend to be the officer classes. And they, you know, in these poems we picked today, they've all been to Oxford. Um, I just think that it's of its time again. And... It's Would, an elite viewpoint. It's uh, look, there were some working class and some. I think. Yeah, I mean, Saki, I think, was working class, wasn't he? That, that, uh, there were some, but not that many. Um, uh, but there, there is a, a, a elite group that became famous. Uh, that's not their fault that they became famous. They're, they're, I mean, Graves, Sassoon, Gray. Um, yeah, um, and Owen. it and it gave an it gave an opportunity for it. it. I think without the Great War, half of them would not have been recognised as poets. I think some would. I think Wilfred Owen would have been, for example. I think Sassoon probably would have been, and Graves was already writing poetry. But I think the majority of them just saw an outlet for how they were feeling, whether they were right or not. Um, now, are the views expressed valid? Is the face, are things like that, valid? I don't really want to get into the analysis, uh, the analysis of it because I think. No, what I mean is, do, does it have a value in understanding the Great War? No, because I don't think Except, any of it does. So, well, I differ slightly in that I think that the poetry has a part to play in an all arms <laughs> understanding of the war. You need everything. You need to understand all the viewpoints, and it is a minority viewpoint, which is part of the whole. I think it's best served, and, and one of the favourite ones of today was the limerick-type uh, poetry. I think it's best served when it's, it's irreverent and put in that way. And I'd like to finish with a poem, if I may, of my own, that um, I, I slaved over for five or six seconds. On Ilkley Moor I sat and shat, like the cat in that hat. Oh, I, I noticed you picked up a bit of the face's form there. Yeah, and I should have dropped the H in that. 
<laughs> well, on that note, we'll leave you. We, we, I hope you, some of you have a look at some of the poets, uh, poetry and, and make your own minds up. That's what's, what it's all about. Surely the one thing about poetry is it's, it's not that those god-awful words, in, in my humble opinion, who else's opinion you're going you're to have? If you like it, it's good. And if you don't like it, it's not to you. And that's all that matters to you. In okay, your Gary? humble opinion. In my humble opinion. Now, bugger off. Cheers, Pete. Cheers. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?